Ben Kamen's going to come up and read our scripture for us this morning. So if you would stand as, as we uh, look at the word, Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We are walking through this book of Philippians, and um, I've had a great and awful time going through this book, um, because as you have seen our theme of joy, um, it has been a confrontation after confrontation as I've been studying of my own sin. And uh, it's one of those books that you read and you're like, man, that's an awesome book. Um, and at the same time, you're like, wow, I'm a really awful person. You know what I mean? Um, this week uh, uh, has been an interesting week for me. I kind of started the week as kind of moping, you know, being um, my pessimistic self sometimes. And, and uh, it all changed Wednesday um, when I was reading in the back of the sanctuary here. And all of a sudden I had this like moment of this uh, intense like chest pain. And... Um, this tells you how, how, how selfish I am. I didn't want to do anything about it, and I didn't even tell my wife until the next day. Um, and as soon as I told her, she um, uh, wanted me to call the doctor. Um, found out, you know, because there's a history going on in my mind as I'm walking through this. My, my uncle, I found out, had his first heart attack when he was my age. Um, my uh, grandfather died about three months prior to my birth because of a brain aneurysm. And my other grandfather had had a few heart attacks. So all this is going through my mind, and I'm like, okay, what's going on? Because I had this, like, five-minute episode of some intense chest pain. And, um, and I'm so ignorant that later in the day I went and ran four miles. Because when you have chest pain, that's the natural thing to do, right? Needless to say, I call the doctor, and they're like, hey, uh, yeah, you need to come in tomorrow. And they did an EKG. Good news, I'm not dying yet. Um, heart came back fine, but there's some, some, just some tests that I need to go through. And so, but in the meantime, I'm walking through this, and I'm thinking, uh, I am scared out of my mind. Um, and I'm thinking about why I'm so nervous, and, and immediately I'm thinking about other people. My wife and kids actually... We're switching our, our life insurance, and I actually withheld mailing the cancellation of one policy just in case, you know. But it's amazing. As we walk through this book of Philippians, a book about joy, and, and, and you read the first chapter, and here's Paul saying, I'm in prison, but I'm going to rejoice. Woohoo! And, and I look at my life, and I'm, and I'm seeing why am I so mopey? Why, why is it that if, if the church has Jesus Christ as the head, why is it that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, yet we find that we get so discontent and so weary with life sometimes? 
so drained? What is it that causes all this? Why, why so much depression creeping in? Why are these things happening? And as I began to look at this text and I began to think about it, there is a disease that we all are infected with. It's a disease that, that there is, is from birth. It's a disease that, that you, requires no training, no uh, level of expertise, except we are already experts in. From the moment we are born, we are experts in this. Every single one of you are experts in this. I can promise you that. You know what it is? Selfishness. We are all experts in selfishness. I mean, from the moment we are born, what is on our mind? Me, 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 and me. I don't care what, whether my mommy is tired. I want to be fed right now. I don't care if, if, if uh, 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 my mommy or my daddy is tired. I need my diaper changed right now, and we let them know, right? I mean, so we're never having to be trained in it. And as I read through this passage and I began to think of my own life and why I'm struggling with certain things and why do I get discouraged and I think about Paul and, and here's this man who, who uh, is filled with joy in the midst of prison. It just got me to thinking that there is a threat to our joy in life and it is called selfishness. And as we walk through this passage this morning, I think we'll see that Paul has not only the diagnosis, the prescription of this disease, but he also has the cure. And so it's not a fun topic to look at whenever you talk about sin in our own lives, but the reality here is there's this giant like paradox, which is the cure. So we're going to look at that this morning, uh, but before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us life and breath and that you fill us with your spirit and in your spirit there is great joy. And so, Father, as we come before you, I pray that we would examine our hearts and our motives, that we can lay it all bare before you and realize that you are our great joy and satisfaction in life. And Father, I pray that as we walk through things, that you would just reveal to us the areas that we need to check our hearts, that we might leave here as a people filled with the joy of the Lord. So, Father, we pray all these things and we ask for your word in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. There are three things that we want to look at in this passage, and, and I thank Ben for reading it for us this morning. Um, so the passage starts with, first of all, a desire of Paul, right? So as you look at it, Paul says... Uh, uh, this nice, eloquent, and I'm sure many of us have read this passage. He starts out in verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. There is a desire that Paul lays out for us, first of all. It's the desire for the church because Paul's concern, you'll notice in all of his writings to the churches, he's got, a, he's got a desire for them. And here is the desire of Paul for the Philippians. His desire is that they would not just be successful in terms of church, but that they would be successful in terms of a healthy, growing, spiritually vibrant, thriving place. And there is a burden that is laid upon him here. 
You can read it. I mean, I always encourage when we walk through um, uh, this preach club with the, 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 the men that have come. And, and by the way, ladies, uh, we're, we're thinking through of how we can even uh, present this to, to the body as a whole of what does it look like to study the word and how do we uh, walk through. And, and one of the things that we encouraged the young men with was finding words or phrases that are repeated over and over again in a text. That's a very important method of of trying to understand what the author's intent is. Well, here we have this phrase, any, four times in the first verse here. Uh, If there is any comfort of love, any uh, encouragement in Christ, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, there is a sense of burden of Paul here where he's saying, my desire is that you guys would be healthy, thriving. And, and, and my burden is this, that if you would just examine your spiritual walk, because I, I, this is one of those passages where you might get a better uh, interpretation if you kind of look at the original language. So the, the wording if there, I'm not sure why they used it. It really means since there is. Since there is, so here's what Paul's saying here. Since you have Jesus Christ and the reality of who he is, his nature and who he is and and what he's all about, the things that he has communicated, those things encourage you, exhort you to this. Since you have been comforted by God's love, we're told that Paul says later on to the Corinthians, he says uh, that, that Christ's love compels us since you have the love of Christ in you, so since you have the example and the exhortation of Jesus, since you have Jesus' love, and since you have the participation that the Holy Spirit is in you, and since you have this tender love for the family of God, because of all these things, my burden is, my burden is that you would all be one. Because here's the reality, if you have Christ's example and his words, we're driven towards unity. Because we have uh, the love of Christ in me, I love other people. Because I have the Holy Spirit residing in me, I have a compassion for those in the family of God because we have our hearts and minds and souls united and knit together. And since I have tender love and sympathy for brothers and sisters, Paul says, complete my joy. This is his burden, complete my joy. And it's a a burden that has the end goal of a bond, right? What does he say his burden is? Complete my joy, how? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity in the body. Complete my joy. Fulfill me. Satisfy me. Being of the same mind. Think the same thing in three different ways, he says. Having the same love, unity of love. Uh, in full accord, it literally means having one soul. Simpsiki. One soul that you are knit together because of Jesus Christ. And one mind, that you're thinking the one thing. Is this not what Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17? Jesus prays to the Father with his disciples there in the upper room. He says, Father, make them one, even as we are one. That's always been the desire of the church. I think it's awesome that, that on Thursday, you know, the theme is unity. 
Brothers and sisters, what makes joy in the body of Christ is unity, that when we are one, and we are moving in one direction because we have one Father and one uh, uh, truth that we are uh, seeking after. This has been a message that Paul has preached to every single church from Galatia to Ephesus to Philippi, and he's going to teach it to his, his, uh, mentor, his young uh, people that he's mentoring, uh, uh, Titus and Timothy. It's always the theme. Why? Because it was Jesus' theme that the church be bonded together. It's Paul's burden, it's his desire, and, and the reality is it's because this unity brings an incredible blessing. And think about it. Paul understands this, and he wants so desperately for the church to gravitate towards it because it's a blessing. I mean, think about it. When, when the body of Christ is bonded and knit together, I mean, the psalmist understood this. In Psalm 133, verse 1, he says, uh, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's an incredible thing. And we can think about the, the pain. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard of, of illnesses that when the body begins to attack itself, how painful it is. I had a, a, a mentor that had... Uh, 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 pancreatitis or pancreatitis however you pronounce it whatever and and he described it you know that that eventually the pancreas uh uh becomes diseased and and the blood cells begin to attack it and i'm sure that this is a complete incorrect description of what is actually going on but the truth is still the same the body was attacking itself and he says it's the most painful thing you can ever imagine and how painful it is when we look across the church and it begins to infight. That's what Paul is seeing here as he begins to think, why is it that when the body of Christ, and we don't just mean HGC, but the body of Christ, universal, begins to fight amongst itself, how painful that is. And that the, the, the exact opposite is true, that the joy when there is peace and harmony and unity. Uh, if you have kids, you know what I mean when you're driving on a long road trip and you're driving and all of a sudden the kids in the back are fighting and, and the only thing in your mind is stop because there's disunity. And the same thing's true with the church. This is Paul's desire because he knows the blessing it is. And he knows that, that, that the, the walk of the body of Christ is best displayed to the world when it is united. And when there is one heart and one mind. And Paul, his desire is this, his burden. He's like, brothers and sisters, if you can do one thing for me, it will satisfy me as your church planter. Be of one mind. That's a heavy first thing. But if that's the goal, there is, there is something, we've already mentioned it, there is a disease that disrupts it, and there is something that, that causes despair. There is something that is the greatest threat. I wrote it in, in the, the email thing that went out this week. The greatest threat to our joy in life is this, disease, selfishness. And Paul lays it out for us. He says in, in verse 3, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not into his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Brothers and sisters, if we are struggling with unity, if we are struggling with joy in our life, I can promise you it has something to do with this. Notice the sickness, selfishness, a rampant disease. It's paradoxical because we do things to please self, and the reality is it doesn't. It actually causes despair. Because it will never, it steals joy instead of giving it. And it is highly contagious. It has existed from the beginning, from Adam and Eve on throughout. It is not, it is, it is, when you stop and think about it, it is almost always the essential root cause of every sin. Selfishness. I want to do that for myself. I want to do that for me. And, and, and ultimately, it is making ourselves gods, right? It's the exact opposite of the greatest commandments, is it not? When you think about it, the greatest commandments is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the reality is that when we are selfish, we are loving self above God and we are loving self about, above our neighbors. Selfishness. So Paul lays out for us what does this look like and the symptoms. And, and, and there are three things here. I want us to, to take note of them. He says, uh, do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition, some translations say. Ambition is the first thing. What does that mean? It means to get into the front of the line. It means to put myself first. That I am most important. That I want what's best for me. You know how I know we've learned this as children? Because if you walk into a nursery and you see a little child who sees a toy that he wants that some other kid has, I can promise you, I can guess how the scenario is going to play out. The child that wants it is going to go over, bonk the other one on the head, and take it from him. Because it's his that he wants. And how oftentimes we say, well, that's kids. But how oftentimes in the secular world, when we talk about career, what do people do? They put others down to elevate themselves so that they look better. I worked in a factory for three years, and I saw it over and over again, where my coworkers would, would uh, uh, totally gossip and, and, and spread all kinds of stories about another coworker. Why? So that they could get ahead of that coworker. Ambition. You look at the, the, the world of, of, of people that are, and it's amazing to me because we praise these people. These, these men who have made millions and billions of dollars, how oftentimes it's about feeding their selfish ambition. You know, you want to you watch selfish, ambitious people. Uh, you can watch some of these multi-million dollar athletes for about two seconds and realize it. That they're going to put somebody else down so that they can be elevated. Ambition is ultimately the pride of life. The disciples struggled with it. They, they came to Jesus. It's this kind of ironic story in Luke, what is it, chapter uh, 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 9. Uh, if you want some humorous uh, reading, you go to Luke chapter 9, and Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and, and all of a sudden he overhears them bickering. You know what they're bickering about? Who's going to be the greatest? Can, I have been caught in stupid conversations before, 
And I imagine that in my mind, the conversations that I'm having and the Lord knows and sees them and I'm like totally embarrassed. Can you imagine? Hey, John, I'm going to be better than you someday. I'm going to be the greatest. And meanwhile, Jesus is over here and he's like, what are you guys talking about? They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. It is the, it's, it's deep in us because the pride of life. You want to be somebody, and when somebody gets ahead of you, you become envious and you try to bring them down. Selfish ambition. Paul says it should have nothing. It's going to ruin unity in the body of Christ. And it's going to, by the way, make you miserable as a follower of Jesus. He goes on, he says, do nothing from from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit. Arrogance is another symbol or or symptom of of selfishness that, that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We think of ourselves better than others. We esteem me more. The offenses of others should should be behind us and our own uh, uh, sins and offenses should be in front of us, yet we have this temptation and this tendency to see the sins of other people and elevate them and notice them and not look at our own. Jesus had a teaching on this, didn't he? When he was speaking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he says, why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye when you have a, a log in your own? You know how you can tell if a person is arrogant? A true mark of arrogance is being highly opinionated. That you want to share your opinions with the world and you want everybody to know that these are your opinions and they must be right. And there's a temptation and this is something that, man, the Lord has been working on through me as I've been studying this is a desire to be a teacher more than a learner. I want to teach the world because I got something to say. That's arrogance. That we are constantly seeking to to teach others and unwilling to to learn. The the Greek word here for conceit literally means hollow or empty words. You having fun yet? Selfishness. You know why it stinks? Because it's true. So he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or, or, or rivalry. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The third symptom, good old-fashioned Latin word for you Latin experts, avarice. You know what that means? Greed. We care more about my possessions. We live in a society that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. To gather up things. You know what selfishness is? You can, you can check selfishness. I, I love Charles Spurgeon had a quote one time. He said, the last thing to get saved in a person is his wallet. Are we more about acquiring and more about my own possessions and more about uh, uh, me versus more concerned about the needs and the things of others? There's a great parable that Jesus shares about Lazarus and the rich man who uh, the rich man was always only ever concerned about his own things and he had the blessings of this life and he he acquired things and Lazarus was this poor beggar who had the 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 dogs would lick his wounds he had nothing and when he died they both died Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham being comforted and taken care of and the rich man who only ever concerned himself with his own stuff was suffering in hell 
Brothers and sisters, these are symptoms of, of a disease that we all possess, which is selfishness. And the reality is that when we start to consider it, that it will impact. And as, as Paul is talking about here, so I want you to connect the dots. Why this is so important is that they are directly connected to joy and unity. That the thing that hinders joy and unity is me and my selfishness. And as we walk through what this passage is telling us, uh, we should look at these symptoms and ask myself, is my mind only always considering my own ambitions? Is my mind only ever considering my opinions and making sure others know what my opinions are? Is my mind only ever about the things that I want and the things that I need to gather for myself? Because Paul said, if you want to complete my joy, be unified, have this mind in you, the things of God, and you can do it by doing nothing from rivalry or conceit, or, or, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And those are the symptoms. And there's a subtlety to this that I want you to catch. The subtlety is this. That when it bothers us that somebody else is selfish, it's usually because it's something we're struggling with. That when we look at somebody else and we're like, man, that person is so selfish, I can't stand it. I can about guarantee that when we do, it's because there's a problem right here. Because usually sins in other people are a glaring flashlight saying, guess what, you have a problem. That's why Jesus says, why do you look at the, the speck of dust in your brother's eye when you got a log in your own eye? Oftentimes the things that bother us in other people are because they bother us because we struggle with it and we hate it about ourselves. Selfish complaints when, when we aren't willing or haven't done it ourselves, we look at things and it's like, I wish that they would just take care of that. Maybe the Lord's put it on your heart to take care of it, but you're unwilling to do it. So if that's the thing that keeps us from joy, the good news is that Paul writes this incredibly beautiful section of Scripture that I hope so many of us have, have taken the time over the course of our life to look at because Paul gives us the direction on how to fix it. This incredible hymn about Jesus. He says, starting in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. So here it is. Here's the cure. So if we struggle with selfishness, here's the cure. I love what he says. Have this mind among yourselves and listen to this phrase, which is what? Yours. Brothers and sisters, we all struggle with selfishness because we are sinful people, but we have Jesus Christ and his mind is in us. We have the cure to selfishness and we can bring about greatest joy in our life. Some of us are sitting here today saying, and I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with over the last month that are just struggling with feeling depressed and feeling overrun and I am one of them. And here is the reality. We have Jesus Christ and his mind in us. And Paul says, here's the cure. And he points us to three different things. He points us, first of all, to a person, Jesus Christ. 
He says, this is the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of nothing, taking the servant, form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You have this because Christ is in you. What was Jesus' selfishness? That he sat in glory on an incredible throne of glory and he said, I will give it all up for them. That he would subject himself to humanity, that he would put on skin and flesh and blood and he would give everything up that he was, even though he was equal with God, that he was the very essence God, he said, I will become them for them. Subjects himself. So what does the person of Jesus tell us? It tells us that here is the first step of a cure is stop thinking about self. He points us to a person. He, he points us to a place. He made himself nothing. Verse 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death to the point of death, even death on a cross. He takes us to a place, Calvary. A place that is brothers and sisters in Christ that we should always have before us. A place that is where the very essence of our gospel is. The cross reminds us of his selflessness. That he had everything. There was nothing that God ever needed. And he laid it all aside. And he came and he was born and lived. And can you imagine what that must have been like for somebody who had never experienced that to, to walk? And it says over and over again in Scripture that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. He faced temptation so that we could find a person that we can go to as a high priest and say, Jesus, I am struggling with this. And he could say, yes, I know. I've been there and I have conquered it and so can you. And he would live a perfect and holy life. And it says that he subjected himself and he obeyed as a servant and, and he took himself to the very uh, uh, sacrifice on the cross. What a beautiful thing the gospel is. That Jesus would willingly... Offer himself, it says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, thinking of others, but doing. That he would be so compelled and constrained. And, and it says in, in one of the gospel accounts that Jesus, as he uh, was approaching the end, it says that he set his face like a flint. He was so determined to go to the cross that, that there was nothing that would ever hinder him or stop him because he was only ever concerned with others. And then on the night before he would go into Jerusalem and be arrested, it, he would stand above Jerusalem and he would say in his compassionate words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often and I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks 
under her wings, but you were not willing. And then when he would be hung on a cross with nails piercing his skin, and he would look upon those who must have been there, and some were mocking and jeering him and saying awful things, and after they had beaten him and, 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 and constantly uh, derided him, he would say in a loud voice that all who could hear, he would pray to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There wasn't an ounce of selfishness. And Paul says, if we struggle with selfishness, look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Calvary, a place where Jesus willingly gave up everything and offered himself as a sacrifice for others. He gave everything he had for others. God Almighty became flesh and blood, humbled Himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then there's a paradox. Therefore. I mean, we live in a world that says power is something you take. You grab and you hold on to and you pursue it with all your might. And God says, no, power is this. That you humble yourself and you serve and God will lift you up. The paradox is this, that the life and the mind is ours in Christ. And there's this redemptive triad here that, that Jesus humbled himself, that he obeyed to death on a cross. And it says that God therefore highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. How do you combat selfishness? Humble yourselves and serve one another. Serve one another. Paul says in, in, in uh, uh, Ephesians, we, we talked about it in the last book that we went through, that Paul says, strive to outdo one another in honoring and serving one another. How is it that we are struggling in, in our minds with contentment and, and, and we are finding that we are despairing and we are wearying ourselves because in the Word it says, be not weary in doing well, for in due season you shall reap a harvest. But yet we feel as an American society, the church is, uh, at least my experience has been as I've talked to people, is there's weariness and there's drudgery and serving and doing. And, and how do we fix this? Attempt to excel in service. If you're struggling in your flesh, I can promise you this, that when you serve and when you uh, seek to love and care for your brothers and sisters, when you strive for unity and, and joy in that will come. That's why Paul would write in Acts chapter 20 that it is better to give than to receive. The problem with selfishness is that when we don't get what we want, we become despairing. But when we give, when we serve, there is great joy. And it's such a paradox because we think, well, I have nothing else to give. I have nothing else to give. I can't give anymore. I'm giving myself. I bet if you actually stopped and think about it, that's not true. 
I would venture to guess it's not true. I just want to ask this morning, as we walk through this passage, as we consider the mind of Christ that is ours, in us, pursued in us, that we can see that, that when Jesus humbled himself and he emptied himself and he gave of himself and he died on a cross with obedience, and it says that therefore God exalted him, are you wearied, burdened, discontent in life? Why do you think that is? Could it be that we are consumed with ourselves? That's why I hated this. Because I knew it was true. Why am I worried and burdened and wearisome when I serve the body of Christ? Because I feel, I, I feel like my ways aren't being met. Because it's about me. In the church, are we more concerned with how it can serve me? Do I complain more than I celebrate what is going on? These are questions I asked myself this week. They were hard questions. Do I have complaints about individuals more than love for them? As I've walked through some difficult seasons as, as, as a pastor of a church, I've thought through my own mind and I thought, man, why was I so consumed with complaining about certain things? Because it's never been about me. We say and we use the mantra all the time, it's about the glory of God. But really, sometimes I think we mean it's about the glory of Nate or insert your name, and how the church can fulfill me. We have, we have a society that, that has a church on every corner, and so if we're not happy with how a church is, is pleasing me, you know what my first step is? To go find another. And so we're not consumed with it being a family anymore and loving one another, and striving for unity, and blessing one another, and walking together. I have no problem with another church right next to me. I think we ought to be encouraging one another as church families, but we are a family. And when we walk out of family, we do so because we're more consumed with ourselves and whether or not that, that the church, my family, has pleased me or done for me what is right. And if there is a wrong, whether it be in leadership or whether it be with somebody, why are we not going and seeking reconciliation and making it happen because we are consumed with me? All oh, this was hard for me this week. In despair, ask yourself, how am I actively having this mind of Christ? Selflessly being a servant. You want to know the greatest, Paul wrote, the greatest cure to selfishness. And, and this would be my last exhortation to you today. My last challenge to you. You want to know how we can work on this? Meditate on 1 Corinthians 13. It's the antithesis. It's the anti-selfishness, right? Love. I mean, that's what Jesus, that's what this whole passage is all about, what, what Paul just wrote about Jesus, uh, that he, he emptied himself. He, though he was God and he was equal, he considered it something that he could lay aside and he would be obedient and, and born of, of likeness of a man and and, and humbled himself uh, to the point of the cross. Why? Because it was great love. 
because of his great love. If the church wants to be united, we ought to meditate on 1 Corinthians 13 and ask ourselves, though I have the gift and, and, and of prophecy and can speak in every tongue, and though I have uh, uh, incredible wealth and I can give to the poor and I can do all these things, and though I have uh, 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 these gifts, but I do them all without love, it's useless. The essence of love is to stop thinking about self and to start thinking about others. And you know what you'll find? Because we think, and, and this, is, this is it, this is, this is what I love about this passage, is that when I think about what will bring me joy, the reality is, and if you stop and actually think about the times you have done it, you'll find that it was some of the most joyful times of your life that brings us joy is when we serve one another. There's a reason why the night before he was betrayed and crucified, Jesus gathered his disciples and he washed their feet. And then he prayed, Father, make them one, even as we are one. Is there selfishness in our life? You bet there is. But we can combat it. And I'd encourage you to, to take some time this week to evaluate that, to, to engage your minds into the word of the Lord. That we can find true joy and we can find the greatest life filled with joy by serving one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, it is so easy. Even in serving, we can be selfish. Because we do it for a reward. And Father, I find that when I have done that, that there is no satisfaction. But I become despairing because I wasn't praised for my serving. And ultimately, Father, that is my sin because I care even in serving so oftentimes about myself. So, Father, I pray that the mind of Christ would be ours, that we would see it and we would realize it and we would seek to, to return to you our great example of hope and love and joy. That we would be reminded of the cross and we would take all of our selfish ambition, all of our arrogance and all of our desire for things for self and lay them at the foot of the cross and never pick them up. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see beyond ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find renewed joy in serving you. We love you. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.